Hi, and welcome to Double Take, the Mellon podcast. I'm your co-host, Rafe Lewis, director of the investigative research team here at Mellon's Boston headquarters. And I'm your other co-host and investigative researcher, Jack Encarnacio. Today on Double Take, a deep dive into the massive generational and demographic changes washing over the United States and what it means for investors. From the sunset of the baby boomer generation to the ascendancy of the millennials to the up-and-coming Gen Z nipping at their heels, much change is afoot. It seems you can't swing a participation trophy without hitting another story about how different millennials are from their predecessors and how that will have widespread ramifications in the workplace and the economy in general. So we thought we'd take a deep dive to see how accurate the stereotypes really are. Rafe, who's going to help us take that dive? Uh, Well, we'll kick off the program with Dr. Richard Fry, who's a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center in Washington. Uh, Following Rick, we'll hear from Mellon's own Nicholas Cohn, who's a portfolio manager and senior research analyst who covers, among other things, consumer and housing-related equities. But first, a little background on Rick Fry. Dr. Fry obtained his doctorate in economics from the University of Michigan, and for several years, he was a senior economist at the Educational Testing Service. Since 2002, he's been at Pew where he's become a recognized expert on American demographics and social trends, whose expertise lies in analyzing U.S. Census Bureau data. Rick, welcome to Double Take. It's great to have you. Great to be with you. Oh, this is wonderful. Hey, Rick, why don't we start by level setting the conversation a little bit and have you just define for us the current generations in the United States. We hear a lot, obviously, about the silent and the boomers, but kind of, you know, what years do they begin and end? How big are they relative to each other? That kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, happy to do that. So I will sort of go with from sort of the uh, oldest to sort of the youngest. Uh, These are Pew Research Center definitions. Uh, The silent generation was those that were born during the Great Depression. They were born 1928 to 1945. So today, they'd basically be those over 75 years old. And as of 2018, there was about 24 million uh, Americans part of the silent generation. Then we get to the big baby boom generation formed from the GIs returning. Uh, The backbone was about 76 million births from 1946 to 1964. The boomers today are 56 years of age to 74. And as of 2018, there's about 73 million baby boomers. Then we come to sort of the, uh, the, the baby bust, Generation X, <laughs> that was born 1965 to 1980, according to Pew definitions. Uh, today, that's Americans between the ages of 40 and 55. There's about 65 million members of Generation X, so currently smaller than the boomers. Then we sort of get the baby boom echo, or what um, has now commonly been referred to as the millennial generation. That's Americans born between 1981 and 1996. They're now 24 years of age to 39, started almost press 40. Um, As of 2018, there was 72 million um, millennials, slightly less than the number of current baby boomers. But the millennials probably, as of now, we only have data through 2018, but probably as of now, the millennials have probably overtaken the boomers. Um, And then we have Generation Z, or what we're currently calling Generation Z, we'll see if that label um, sticks, but that's um, Americans born 
after um, 1996. So the oldest Gen Zer is 23 years of age, and the Pew Research Center um, has not sort of tried at all to delineate when um, the youngest Gen Zer was born. And so I really can't give you a population figure for Gen Z because I don't, I don't have a way to define it yet. So um, that's sort of the current constellation of generations in America. Thanks very much for that. So if I'm not mistaken, the baby boomers had about a dozen years in which they saw more than 4 million births a year. But the millennials only had a few years like that. So how are millennials even remotely close in size to the baby boomer generation? Yeah, that's a very interesting observation. And so just to sort of put some numbers on it here, there was 76 million births in the baby boom. And at their peak, there was 79 million baby boomers. And so what that sort of tells you is that immigration that was not didn't really impact too much the ranks of the baby boom generation as they matured. You're right. Not so with the millennials. The millennials, um, sort of, if you look at the births constituting them, they were only 62 million. They're up 72 million now, and the Census Bureau projects that at their peak, they're going to peak at about 76 million. So, so what goes on there? 76 million, but only 62 million births. This tells you one of the one of the demographic differences between the millennials and the boomers is that the millennials were coming of age when immigration to the U.S. during the 80s and 90s, we had big immigration flows, including some children coming up, coming on. So basically, millennials, their numbers have been stoked by the immigration wave to the U.S. Um, that we've experienced over the last 25 years. So does that mean that they are inherently more diverse than all the generations that came before them, or at least, you know, uh, you know, if going back just to the silent generation? Because, uh, I mean, we know there was a huge immigration wave before that, but as you know, Correct. in these current cohorts. So it is, we, they are a more diverse generation. And what does that mean about you know, everything about them. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> the way they live, their worldview, what they purchase, uh, what they do. Um, just to put some sort of numbers on it, um, the boomers are about 72% non-Hispanic whites, whereas the millennials are only about 55% non-Hispanic whites. So clearly you're right, the millennials, more racial ethnic minorities, and that, that, that has implications. And let me just mention a couple of them. Um, I sort of like to think about the housing market. When you sort of sort of look at sort of who presently is sort of most likely to live in sort of multi-generational living arrangements, that is, you know, grandparents and adult parents living with their children, you'll see racial ethnic minorities, Hispanics, Asian Americans, African Americans, they're much more likely to live in multi-generational living arrangements. And so the fact that the millennials are more diverse probably has an impact on the kind of housing arrangements and demand for houses and the kinds of housing they want. Similarly, when we sort of look at sort of, well, where they live, um, the millennials are more metropolitan than the boomers are. 84% of boomers live in um, metropolitan areas, whereas 89% of millennials live in metropolitan areas. So you're right, it does, there's some of their demographic characteristics and their greater diversity does sort of impact some of their other characteristics. Does the data tell us anything, Rick, around millennials living in cities in urban centers because they prefer it or because they just wait longer to form typical suburban households than the prior generation? Um, I, 
On the preferences, I sort of don't want to weigh in on that. What I will say is this, is um, when we look at young adults, today's young adults are more likely to live in what I'll call sort of the urban cores, in this basically the inner central counties of major metropolitan areas rather than the suburbs. That's been true so far. The $64,000 questions, and I don't know the answer to it, and I don't think it's been definitely demonstrated, is I mentioned that the oldest millennial is approaching 40. So the millennials, you know, they're not they're not kids anymore. They're now sort of in, in sort of their core family-forming years, having children. And one of the $64,000 questions is that as they have kids and, you know, they get beyond preschools, are they going to sort of remain in those urban core counties or like earlier generations, are they going to sort of go out to the burbs for possibly better schools and other um, characteristics? And I don't know if we know yet um, what the millennials are doing, but at least so far, you're right. They have sort of revitalized our nation's urban core counties. You know, Rick, one of the negative stereotypes about uh, millennials is that you know, they came out of college, they were totally saddled with student loan debt, and they ended up living in their parents' basements and, you know, disappointing to their baby boomer, uh, you know, parents. But from what I'm hearing from you, that may be an unfair stereotype in that there may be some subset of this cohort that is a multi-generational household that may prefer to live like that. And some of this may be a choice rather than a obligation or a, a need. Yeah. Um, yes, and I think so. Just as an example, when we sort of let's say get not the eighteen to twenty-four year olds, but say when we look at sort of the twenty-five to thirty-seven year olds, you know, sort of um, beyond when you sort of get beyond the schooling years, um, it is true that uh, today's young adults are more likely to be living with mom and dad than um, earlier generations, but. It's probably not the college educated who are the ones that have more of the student debt. It's much more, that's much more a phenomenon of the less educated um, young adults than um, the uh, better educated ones. So, yeah, they are more likely to live with mom and dad, but it's not because of student debt, at least not among the 25 to, say, 37 year olds. Um, and I think there are some indicators that, yeah, sort of this, this sort of stereotype. Yeah, they are sort of sort of later to launch, but they're clearly pursuing more schooling. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons that they're later to launch. And I think and we can get into this. I think when you sort of go out and you sort of look at how much are they earning, how much are they working, um, you know, you, the, the notion of sort of the lazy millennial, I think, doesn't sort of stand up to scrutiny. Got it. You know, that's a pretty good segue to what I was thinking of next, which is just that, you know, when when you think about the definition of the American dream, right, it's defined by social mobility, the idea that your kids can almost should do better than their parents. And yet your research seems to suggest that millennials are not necessarily obtaining the American dream by those standards, that this non-college education cohort is actually faring worse than the Gen X and baby boomers. Yeah. Keep in mind, um, that's that, that's true. I would say sort of an average statement, um, sort of that, you know, millennials as a whole, both less educated and the better educated combined as a whole, I mean, they're, they're not doing um, worse off. It varies a little bit about what measure we, we would look at. But sort of where the clear differences come in is when we look at the sort of the college educated millennials compared to, say, the college educated boomers. 
as an average statement, the college-educated millennials are doing significantly better than the college-educated boomers. Where the millennials are really struggling is, you're right, the less educated ones, the ones particularly that have not pursued any post-secondary education after high school, they are faring significantly worse than, say, their boomer um, counterparts were back in the early 80s. Uh, Let me just sort of put some numbers on it. If we sort of look at sort of the earnings of full-time workers, for a high school-educated boomer back in the early 80s, high school-educated boomer made about $34,000. A um, less-educated millennial today makes about $31,000. So where the millennials are struggling relative to their their boomer parents, it's among the less educated ones. Similarly, if we look at their uh, household incomes, the less educated millennials don't have the household incomes that the less educated boomers had. So where the millennials are really struggling he is among the less educated ones. And, and just to clarify, when you say the $34,000 income for the uh, high school educated boomer versus 31000 for the millennial uh, high school educated um, cohort, um, are those inflation adjusted dollars or? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. these are, these are, everything's, everything's basically that number within 2018 dollars. Yes. And everything, yes, I've adjusted for inflation. And that was for one that sort of reported that the prior year they were working full-time. So this is sort of earnings of full-time young adults. All right, Rick, that's great. So, so diving a little more into the actual millennial category itself, um, your work seems to suggest that we're starting to see some divergence among male millennials and female millennials. Uh, can you talk about what the data shows there? This was sort of this... This divergence, you already saw it emerging sort of with Gen X, but the trend simply sort of continued. If we sort of look at um, the baby boomers back in the 80s, the guys tended to be better educated than boomer, young boomer women. That there was a, a crossover in the late 80s and 90s already apparent among the Gen X as they were coming to coming of age. But now sort of what we see among um, less millennial women, let me sort of first focus on education. Today's millennial young women, almost 40% of them have completed at least a bachelor's degree. Among their millennial male counterparts, around 33%, about a third. So there's about a good seven percentage point gap nationally between millennial women and millennial men in you know higher education um, attainment. If we sort of look at their earnings, the gap in earnings between young men and young women has narrowed. Um, roughly speaking, these aren't going to be exact um, figures, but back in 1980, among, say, young women, they were making maybe uh, close to 70 cents um, on the dollar that a young man made. That gap has narrowed, and now sort of young women make about 85% on the dollar that a young man makes. So there has been sort of a shift in roles where opportunities and career choices, um, as well as educational choices, um, in some areas, young women are significantly now outpacing young men. Well, that leads nicely back a little bit into the conversation about student debt, which is an overwhelming conversation for that millennial generation, right? Like, so I, I guess I, what I wonder is the, the perception, at least in my Gen X generation, is that the millennials have it a lot worse when it comes to student debt. School is more expensive. They need more levels of it to 
kind of attain the same level of uh, earnings maybe that a millennial or a baby boomer could have had with just a BA or just high school? You know, it seems like it's always going up another step. Is it true? Do they have more debt? Are they more burdened? Um, yes, but sort of put some numbers on it. And um, the the data that I'm citing, okay, is coming from the, the Federal Reserve. They do their wealth survey every three years. That's where this is coming from. And I don't have, they've been doing this, this wealth survey. It goes all the way back to the 1980s. But back in the 80s, they didn't ask about student debt. So I don't have student debt figures for the boomers back in the 80s. That might what be telling in compare, its own right, though, Rick, right? I mean, the fact that they weren't asking means maybe it wasn't important. They didn't important. even ask it. <laughs> yes. So what I can do, though, is I can sort of compare um, as of 2016, which was this, the latest Fed survey we have, um, I can compare the millennials' debts in 2016 to sort of what Gen X had when they were sort of young, similarly aged, back in 1998, okay? And this is a, uh, these are household figures. That's sort of the unit of analysis that the Fed works with. Back in... Um, 1998, when we looked at Gen Xers, when they were um, basically 22 to 37, about 23% of Gen X households back in 1998 reported, I have some student debt. Whereas when we look at households headed by millennials in 2016, 45% said, I am paying um, student debt. So basically, it's almost double the incidence. So in the space of a generation, yes, more millennials have had to borrow in order to finance their education. What, what may be surprising, though, is now these – what I'm going to report here is not the total amount of student debt they occurred. What the Fed gives me is what do, what do they still owe? In other words – Given what they totally borrowed, plus they've been making some payments, what is their outstanding amount of student debt? If they had student debt, the typical Gen X household back in 98 had about 13 grand still remaining to pay off, whereas um, the millennials, 45% of them have it, but the amount that they owe at the median, half above, half below, is about 19 grand still outstanding. So yes, they're more likely to have student debt. They seem to have greater balances, but um, it's it's a judgment call how onerous, um, you know, still owing about nineteen grand is. I think um, it's certainly not trivial. It may be having some impacts on sort of their other um, choices that they're they're able to make, but it's clearly not the you know fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars that you occasionally sort of hear. So, but that that's what the Fed Fed data shows. Rick, you published a fantastic report in October highlighting that U.S. household size, meaning the number of people in the average household, is now increasing for the first time in over a century. Why is that happening? There's several reasons. One is the fact, as I alluded to earlier in our conversation, um, the U.S. is increasingly a uh, more racially and ethnic diverse country, and um, racial and ethnic minorities they are much more likely to live in a multi-generational living arrangement that typically entails a bigger household. So sort of one of the sort of a long run driving factors here is um, sort of, again, growing racial ethnic diversity, more um, families choose to living with multiple families under their roof. So that's kind of a long run driver of rising household size. But in addition, 
there's also been a sort of a short run factor in the wake of the housing bust, in the wake of the Great Recession, um, household formation really slowed down. It really lagged. It especially lagged among the nation's um, young adults. It still hasn't, you know, sort of fully recovered. And so in the wake of the Great Recession, we simply had what I elsewhere have termed more shared living, more people either living with relatives or living with non-relatives. And so that, again, more adults per household. And so, yeah, it's rather startling. Um, at least least this decade, this is the first decade in a long, long time in which American households seem to be getting bigger rather than the long-run trend of getting smaller. Does the data say anything about whether the millennials and maybe the older uh, Gen Z are buying into the traditional concept of family, marriage, having kids? I mean, what, what's happening there? Uh, I certainly don't want to speak about, about Gen Z on this because they're simply, they're simply not old enough. Right, right. Uh, I think, I mean, to some extent, with sort of out getting into sort of survey data, which my colleagues are very good at, I mean, to some extent, let's just sort of, you know, look at, Look at the fertility numbers, what we get out of the Census Bureau. And I think on that score, um, we know that they are sort of certainly at least postponing marriage, if not foregoing it altogether. And then, well, norms have changed. Okay, One can sort of pursue family life possibly without marriage. But let's just sort of look at sort of how, you know, sort of how many children um, young women are having. And um, here we go. This is sort of um, – these are figures on um, the share of women who are childless, who haven't had any any births. And what we saw back in 1980, if we look at 18 to 34-year-olds, that's what the framework is. Back in 1980, 47% of 18 to 34-year-old women reported that they had never given birth, were childless. By 2018, it is now – 59% of 18 to 34-year-old women are childless. So, you know, one can possibly argue that it's not children foregone, but rather they're simply delaying. That's sort of possible. But I, I do think that um, the number of, of childless women is on the rise. And I think, I think it's, I'm comfortable stating that one way that these younger generations are different is um, young women have many more opportunities available to them than was the case for their parents and grandparents. I think it's clear that young women are more school and work focused. And at least in terms of having children, the evidence so far does suggest, I think, that they are less family oriented. Again, maybe they're only just postponing. But um, when you look at childlessness, it's clearly up. And so I think that is a fair indicator of that they may be less family focused. Very, very interesting stuff, Rick. Lastly, for you, the baby boomers are officially entering their senior years what does the data tell us about how, if at all, they're different than prior generations and how they live, work, spend? I would say uh, I'll just point to sort of two things. In terms of sort of their, their wealth levels, again, referring back to that Federal Reserve data, it looks to me like at least as of, as of 2016. Now, granted, the last three years we've had 
a greater uh, run up in the stock market. And in many housing markets, housing values have gone up. So maybe the, the 2019 numbers, when we get them, will will sort of moderate this, this observation. But at least as of 2016, the baby boomers as a whole, at the median, their wealth levels were trailing the silent generation in the late 90s um, in their wealth levels. So at least as of 2016, it looked like it looks like the baby boomers are going to sort of be the first generation that was sort of less prepared for retirement than the earlier, older generations. Um, let's hope 2019 will reverse that, but we'll see. Um, so I would say a little bit less wealth than their their silent counterparts at the same age. And it's very clear, I've also looked at the labor force participation. Um, if you look at today's 65 to 74 year olds, they are more likely to be in the labor force than the silent generation and the greatest generation was before them. Um, Older Americans are working more than they used to. There's two, at least two reasons for that. Among the women, it's not surprising. Baby, baby boomer women throughout their, over their whole entire lives have been more likely to be working than older generations of women. And so the fact that baby boomer women are working more is simply reflects the fact that they, they have throughout their whole lives. But it's even true among the men. Baby boomer men are working more than silent men were and greatest generations uh, men were at the same same age. So a little bit less wealth, but possibly reflecting better health status um, as well as sort of more education. Um, the boomers are hanging on to the workforce longer. Well, that's their choice, I guess. Uh, well, Dr. Richard Fry, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center, thank you so much. This was really interesting. You are very, very welcome. Welcome back to Double Take, where for this episode, we're drilling down into the ramifications of massive generational change overtaking the United States and thinking about how the COVID-19 pandemic, the resultant recession, and the social strife that has erupted since may have altered the entire trajectory. So we've heard what the data leading up to the pandemic were telling us. Now let's turn to the future and how to think about what all these changes will mean going forward, particularly for investors. Rafe, please tee up our next guest. With pleasure. Uh, joining us from his home office in Boston is Nick Cohn, who's a portfolio manager and senior equity analyst for Mellon, who covers consumer durables, uh, house home builders, uh, housing-related stocks. And a key way Nick does that is by diving down into demographic data and making forecasts. So Nick, you know, I, I'll say it, it's nowhere in his uh, formal bio, but he's one of Mellon's big thinkers. He's a fella just as much at home in the forest as he is in the trees. He's a graduate of Johns Hopkins. He majored in political science. He spent time at BlackRock, Sony and Capital, Fidelity. He also happens to be a millennial and in keeping with stereotypes, a serious foodie. So we expect plenty of references to aromatic bone broths, esoteric sauces, and all the kinds of cooking that has flowered during this pandemic. Uh, and I will also mention just lastly that we initially recorded an interview with Nick on this very topic right before the pandemic hit and uh, had to shelve it because, well, the entire world has basically changed since then. So uh, let's hear how his answers may have changed in this intervening time. Nick, welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, 
I guess I'll start by giving us all a collective pat on the back. And this is completely unaccountable to any of our listeners, but we got a lot of stuff right, even given that there was a pandemic. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, I will, we'll go in depth on a lot of the, a lot of the forecasts that we have for, for the housing market and, you know, um, and how millennials are going to be similar and different to the generations that preceded them as they, as they age. Um, I will just share a, a funny little tidbit from our first recording. Um, Rafe actually asked um, if uh, all the new teleworking tools um, would allow for people to live further from their physical workplaces. He asked this in January 2020. Um, and I said, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, that sounds good. But there's absolutely no data to support that. So. We probably shouldn't even talk about the context. Of <laughs> Just call uh, me Nostradamus, and I'll be going out to buy lottery tickets after this uh, interview. Yeah, the the intervening three months have have given us a little bit of data to suggest there there might have been something to that theory. But um, glad to glad to be here, glad to be back. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this is a, a a great topic because it's um, there are a lot of things. Uh, that have changed from the first time we we talked about this together, and uh, but there there's a lot of things that haven't, and and uh, where uh, the trends we were predicting would emerge have have emerged, and uh, might be even more enduring than we we initially thought. So, um, thanks for having me. Really cool. Really excited to revisit this, even in this context, or perhaps even more so. Now, Nick, I know that you heard the comments of our preceding guest, Rick Fry. He says the sixty-four thousand dollar question as we examine the ascendance of the millennials is. Will they ultimately settle down, buy a house, make a family, or are they somehow doomed to dwell perpetually in cramped urban confines with roomies? So now let's feather into that question the added complexity of a pandemic, which resulted obviously in hundreds of millions of Americans locked down in their living rooms, be they on sprawling ranches or cramped condos. They may not ever return to the office, thus redrawing the very confines of where they can live. How do you think about the future of home ownership for millennials, and does the pandemic accelerate or alter any of your predictions? Great questions. So prior to the pandemic, I would have said uh, people are over-extrapolating uh, life stage differences into generational differences, and that they are assuming that because millennials currently live very differently from Gen Xers and baby boomers, they concentrate in urban cores, they live in, small, uh, in smaller apartments with more people, um, that uh, that's how they always want to live. And, and I think the evidence suggests that as millennials age, they start to look more like we imagine Gen Xers and baby boomers. And so I was already predicting that uh, suburbs and exurbs would be net beneficiaries of these trends and that entry-level single-family housing would be uh, one of the hottest consumer durable uh, industries uh, or sub-industries um, as these demographic trends manifested in, in very strong housing demand um, this year and, and kind of into the mid to late 2020s based on, uh, on, on age curves. We never get to see if I would have been right anyways, but uh, we, can, we can clearly say that those things are happening strongly as a reaction to COVID-19. Um, the housing market is incredibly strong, especially given the drop in general consumer confidence. 
suburbs and exurbs are disproportionately seeing demand. And the strongest segment anecdotally is the sub $500,000 entry level single family house. I think this is an acceleration of what would have happened anyways. And as a result, I think this is more sustainable than some other people might. Um, though I will caution that a number of consumer durable categories, um, boats, RVs that are expressions of people wanting more space are seeing acyclically strong demand right now that, that probably is not a full secular change unless, um, you know, unless we are currently living the new normal. And it's not a question for me. I, I, I can just say is, uh, you know, somebody who, who thinks about stuff like this, I, I think it's difficult to say with any certainty right now. And, and I, think, I think you have to assume that a broad distribution of possibilities are in play. Nick, how do you reconcile this really strong housing market with unemployment levels that haven't reached these heights or depths, you know, since the Great Depression, well beyond what we saw during the Great Recession a little over 10 years ago? You've got loan forbearances ticking up pretty dramatically. You've got a lot of late rent payments out there. How can these two things coexist? So that's a great question. And I will offer a couple reasons, um, but I'm not sure that I've completely completely connected all the dots in that I am not confident that, that all of the strength we are seeing right now is sustainable in the near term. I am confident that it's sustainable in the medium, kind of three to five year term. It doesn't look like an overshoot, um, but COVID has made near-term economic forecasting really difficult. So the the first and kind of saddest part of answer to your question is a lot of the unemployment that we are seeing is at kind of the lowest wage levels where people probably weren't going to be buying houses anyways. We haven't yet fully seen um, the economic damage of COVID uh, cascade into the middle class yet. Uh, we have a little bit, um, but it is a very open question as to whether the economy and society recovers quickly enough uh, such that uh, the the damage doesn't really cascade into the middle class. Um, so, you know, if you think about the industries that have been disproportionately hit with job losses, you know, food service, for example, um, those are industries that have a lot of uh, renters rather than buyers among their employees. Now, it's unequivocally a bad thing to have so many productive Americans out of work beyond economically. It's, it's, it's morally a problem, um, but uh, it won't necessarily have the headline effect, the effect on the housing market that you'd expect from the headlines. Another thing uh, is that people, and I, I, I'm trying to be careful with my language here, both the workforce and employers and the government seem to be thinking ab about a lot of this unemployment as temporary. 
Um, you've seen big unemployment spikes, not quite this big, but you've seen big unemployment spikes locally around disasters. You know, we, uh, we've separately talked about kind of the experience of some of the Gulf Coast states around Hurricane Katrina, and you see temporary unemployment spikes and then reasonably quick returns to previous trend. And purchase behavior actually doesn't get that affected by unemployment that isn't that is viewed as temporary. I honestly do not know how temporary a lot of this unemployment will prove to be. And I think it's a very important question for things much more important than the housing market. Um, but I will say that purchase behavior for, for certain consumer durables more closely looks like um, what people would do with temporary rather than permanent unemployment. You also have a genuinely and generally effective uh, government stimulus program or series of government stimulus programs that have given people a little bit of extra spending money. Obviously, it's not really the difference uh, between having a house and not, but it cascades through the economy and leaves us at you know higher consumer confidence levels than, than you'd otherwise expect. You know, similarly, the wealth effect from the stock market does genuinely have an effect on people's purchase behavior. Not not the average person, but at the margin, it matters. And then on top of that, you know, it, I was alluding to it earlier, but let me let me say it more explicitly. There is some meaningful spike in demand from people wanting space of their own. You know, you see it with houses, you see it with boats, you see it with RVs. Now, the housing market is so big that I, I just don't think that's all of it. Um, but that's certainly affecting the numbers. And, you know, far be it for me to tell you exactly how much that is or how long it's going to uh, continue to be a tailwind to, to housing demand. What I can say, though, is housing demand is incredibly strong right now. Um, mortgage purchase purchase applications um, uh, for the uh, June 17th release um, just came out at an all-time, or not all-time, at a 11-year high. Um, and uh, Pricing almost everywhere for houses is up year over year. Um, it's a it's a very strong market, um, not just strong for COVID. So, Nick, the counter narrative out there, at least until the pandemic, was that you have a generation of young adults who grew up watching the family home get foreclosed on, right, during the Great Recession. So there's a lot of scar tissue there. And now they're loath to sink capital into a house only to, you know, potentially lose their equity investment. It sounds like uh, you don't quite buy that, or that there's more to say there. Uh, you're, you're right. I don't. I don't quite buy that. Um, the millennials are. Well, let me say this as a millennial. Millennials are not the unluckiest generation in history. <laughs> um, I, I've seen that meme floating around a little bit, and uh, it's it's just wrong. I mean, uh, this is pretty much every generation has has dealt with uh, some amount of hardship. Um, and, uh, and in many cases, more, more significant hardship than, than we have. Uh, you know, I think, I think we've had our struggles and, um, and I think, uh, you can use those struggles to create some narratives about ways in which millennials are different. Um, but I think when you dig into the data, the data don't really support some of the most popular narratives. Um, for example, if you look at, uh, this is pre COVID gaps to historic, historical home ownership rates among wealthy Americans and poorer Americans. Poorer Americans, while they own homes at rates 
uh, at lesser rates than wealthy Americans actually own homes at similar rates to how uh, to what they did previously in history. Uh, it's wealthy Americans who are really undershooting the historical average of home ownership. So I, I don't buy the narrative that millennials can't purchase homes or um, are, you know, just so economically damaged by by the great financial crisis we'll see about COVID um, that that they are stunted relative to previous generations and their ability to purchase. Um, it, it seems to be more of an issue of choice. Um, and I think this shows up, some of the stronger narratives show up in um, in some of the, the data around, you know, for example, childbirth. Uh, millennial women are choosing to have children later than, than other generations. And this is a you know, traditional trigger towards uh, buying a house, you know, the, either having a child or preparing to have a child. And so I think that gives a little more credence to the idea that millennials look like other generations with a little bit of a, of a lag. I guess the final point I, I'd make is millennials aren't ultimately that different from other generations in how they spend their money at various stages in, of life. You know, I've done a lot of research on changes in purchase behavior by age cohorts, changes in headship, so the the um, propensity to head your own household by age cohort. And millennials kind of behave a little bit in the direction of each of the popular narratives about how they're different, but it, just the magnitude of difference isn't that great. Nick, you know, the after effects of the killing of George Floyd on a street in Minneapolis, you know, I don't think we we really know what the full impact of that is going to be. But I, I I believe, regardless of that, that the second quarter of 2020 will forever be remembered as a time of civil strife. I mean, the most in the United States since the 1960s riots that followed the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Those riots led largely, I think, I think they were probably the, the main catalyst to the so-called white flight movement to the suburbs when a lot of white middle-class city dwellers left. This time around, you do have crowds in the street that are largely peaceful. There have been some instances of violence, looting, rioting. What's your take? I mean, is there a chance that we're going to have another flight from the city because of what's been going on? So I think I think there is a lot to unpack with that question, and I will, I'll do my best to answer it, but you know, I, I don't think I'm capable of answering it fully, and I don't know that anybody is right now. I think there is a popular narrative that the late 60s riots explain white flight, but I don't particularly subscribe to that. I think um, the suburbanization of America, is what I will call it, was a more continuous trend than that point narrative gives it credit for. Um, and the, you know, I guess we can call it white flight and regentrification of American cities pretty closely mirrors urban crime rates, um, broadly and, and certainly specifically in various cities. So, I don't buy the idea that specific outbreaks of unrest cause big migrations. And, you know, one of the counterfactuals is, you know, you can look at some of the, the 
you know, really disruptive riots in the early 90s in, in, in Los Angeles. And but they happened at the beginning of a trend of kind of regentrification of of um, uh, of of Los Angeles and other cities and didn't really have much of an effect. If my narrative about urban crime rates generally, not specifically in any instances, affecting whether people who can afford to live elsewhere want to live elsewhere, uh, if, if that's true, we're really so far away from uh, any of the historic levels that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and even early 2000s um, that that prompted people with means to leave the city in the first place. So could we be at the start of some generational change in urban safety and um, you know people's perception of of how desirable it is to live in a city because of of unrest maybe i I just don't see it and i i don't I don't know. I think it's a lot to infer that from, um, you know, a few weeks of, of very peaceful protests with broad social support. I, I, I just don't see that. I think the more interesting question, um, or maybe the more powerful question, is what does COVID and its after effects do to the desire of people with means to live in cities? And I honestly don't know. You have a huge price per square foot premium in top 15 urban cores and and certainly in specific neighborhoods. And theoretically, that is predicated on a number of things that may not persist. So it's predicated on kind of, you know, cultural agglomeration benefits, you know, cool restaurants and bars. Um, it is predicated on access to local job markets that are higher paying than uh, than other non-local job markets. And, uh, and to a lesser extent, it's predicated on a huge block of, you know, wealthy 20-somethings. Um, and that's that's the millennials. And, you know, kind of all three of those things are, are at risk. I mean, I can tell you the millennials are going into their 30s, and we'll see if they still have the same taste in their 30s as they did in their 20s. I suspect they will opt for more suburban living. Um, it remains to be seen how permanent telework is and how accepted telework is, um, especially for some of the highest paying jobs in the country. Um, I don't know how that will end up, but I will tell you that uh, if telework becomes a permanent feature, um, and does not disadvantage employees, that will reduce the real estate premium that some of these cities and neighborhoods have enjoyed um, and will benefit the suburbs. And finally, you know, I think it's difficult to tell how powerful in the very near term some of the, the you know, storefront cultures in, in, in these cities will be given that um, that's been the hardest hit part of the economy. So... I do think it is very likely that people were going to see more strength in the suburbs, exurbs, and kind of non-top 15 cities. We're already seeing it, you know, Zillow and Redfin, who have a lot of great real estate data, have already highlighted the extent to which search activity has moved outside of the traditional cores in kind of the last two months. Um, but until we know what's going to happen with restaurants and bars and other cultural institutions, and until we know what's going to happen 
with white collar work from home culture, I think it's really difficult to say how dramatic the shift from expensive cities to suburbs, exurbs, even rural living is going to be. Nick, can you tell us more about the differences as you found them between millennials and other generations in terms of how they buy a house, how they buy it? You know, do they prefer uh, turnkey pristine homes or fixer-uppers? Are they looking uh, for smaller starter houses or McMansions? Um, should we also expect, you know, home builders to start installing 1,000-gallon hand sanitizer dispensers at the front door? <laughs> uh, so a lot of great questions in there, and I, I don't have all the answers, and frankly, neither does the home building industry. I think uh, a lot of different home builders um, who really are the people to answer this question because um, they're the ones who build new houses, so houses that can be built, um, they can really define the lived space in more of a way than anybody else who touches the real estate environment can. Um, I don't think they have an answer. I mean, some of them are definitely taking an approach of uh, attacking the kind of uh, renter by choice market, which is to say relatively wealthy millennials who haven't bought a home yet, uh, but are used to living in really nice, uh, well outfitted uh, inner city condos or inner city apartments um, and are looking for similarly nice features uh, in their first um, in their first home. So, you know, these people want to be close to transit, uh, close to a vibrant bar and restaurant scene, and they want all the nice finishes. So that's where a lot of the kind of extra money in the home goes to. Um, that said, you know, you have many millennials who, who really want um, affordability. And so you have other, uh, other home builders who are really just trying to get that unit cost down um, through standardization um, and, uh, you know, giving good but not top of the line fit and finish um, but just doing it quickly and um, allowing people to, you know, almost make that that impulse purchase um, to get in their get in their first home. Um, I think in two or three years, uh, the industry and and researchers like myself will have a much better sense of of exactly what housing tropes uh, satisfy this market demand. But we're we're really, um, you know, at the beginning of this group. And this group's tastes um, and all the subgroups within it starting to dominate the housing market. This is not, they really haven't been an active force in the market um, for uh, pretty much this entire housing upcycle until last year. So consumers are still figuring out what they want and, and the, um, the housing industry is still figuring out how best to serve them. I, I will say on how to buy a home, you know, I, I believe there is a, a lot of uh, wood left to chop with making the house purchase process um, more similar and to the other relatively frictionless uh, uh, consumer purchase processes that, that, that this generation and, and especially younger generations are used to. Um, you know, a lot of technology first providers of real estate services uh, have really been attacking real estate services as kind of the last frictional market um, uh, for consumers. Uh, and getting a lot of traction doing so. And, and you know, it's my view and, and, and kind of the result of my research. I think they're going to continue to have success. Um, the housing market has been driven for years um, by the purchase habits of uh, largely baby boomers, just because Generation X is a relatively small generation. Um, and now as leadership is being handed over to millennials, uh, I think it's a competitive necessity 
to remove frictions from the process and let millennials um, buy houses the way they're used to buying a lot of other things. And, you know, uh, young consumers and, you know, although I should mention, we're not really talking about genuinely young consumers. We're talking about um, 30 and 35 year olds at this point in a lot of cases. Um, but uh, these people have, have shown time and time again throughout the last 10 years that uh, they will surprise you with how significant a purchase they're willing to make largely without human contact as part of the process. And, and many of them um, even prefer it that way. So I, I think there's still great rewards um, available for, for real estate services competitors who, who really crack the nut of making this a frictionless process for younger consumers. Nick, um, I saw a really eye-popping figure uh, just today, as a matter of fact, which showed that baby boomers in the aggregate have a net worth of $76 trillion dollars. And millennials have five trillion. And that said to me that at some point in the coming decade or so, I would assume there's going to be a large transfer of wealth uh, uh, from these baby boomers, presumably to their kids, their grandkids, maybe to some you know philanthropic causes. But I'm assuming the millennials are going to have quite a bit more money at some point. And I'm wondering, you know, how you think about what the impact of that could be and if that presumption is even correct. Mm, so that's a really good question. I haven't done enough work on exactly how that wealth is distributed to know what effect that is going to have on the median millennial um, or even kind of the top 20th percentile millennial. Uh, it it may or may not have a large effect. I just, I, I would have to do that work before I'd feel comfortable commenting. I think one thing that I have done a lot of work on and I do feel comfortable commentating on is millennials are going to be spending more money, partly because they're going to have more money, even, you know, uh, regardless of, of intergenerational wealth transfers, um, they are entering their peak earning years, um, but they're also entering peak spending years. And so um, the as the demographic, we've talked a lot about how the demographic bulge of millennials is going to be a large tailwind for the housing market in the coming years, but it's going to be a large tailwind for a number of other categories as well. Um, so I think you can safely, uh, safely say that anything you expect 35-year-olds to be spending a lot of money on Assume there will be more 35-year-olds and also assume that they will have uh, more resources to spend at 35 than, than they do now when they're 30. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of that question? Oh, it was just whether the presumption's even correct that the millennials are actually going to get their hands on that money. <laughs> I don't know about you know longevity and whether the baby boomers are going to live significantly longer if their life philosophy is to, you know, spend it all on Maseratis and, and second and third homes instead of giving it to their kids and grandkids. Yeah, so, so your second question as to whether one should even assume an intergeneration, intergenerational wealth transfer in the coming years is a good one. I, I won't say I have a complete answer, but I will say generally when looking at behaviors associated with old age or let me say behaviors associated with older ages, 
the boomer generation has consistently surprised to um, how long they do the middle age thing and how late they start doing the old age thing. You know, somewhere where we've talked where that's gotten a lot of scrutiny is um, working. So, you know, boomers um, are uh, staying in the workforce um, for a longer time than, than you might otherwise expect for various reasons. Um, and uh, they are certainly so they have been supporting the housing market a little longer and forming new households a little longer than you would have expected um, given previous generations. Now, uh, I think it's a little too morbid, and I certainly don't have any data to speculate whether that extends to uh, dying <laughs> or, or giving money to uh, younger generations. Um, but uh, boomers have definitely um, had a lot of longevity uh, in uh, in other areas that that uh, economists have analyzed, and and I think it's uh, if there's I think a lot of energy is spent on trying to figure out how millennials are different from the generations that preceded them. Honestly, I mean, it, boomers' differences from the generations that preceded them uh, are are in many ways just as interesting. Well, look, we've covered a lot, and uh, it's been fascinating to hear your insights. When we talk, wrapping it up here, uh, generally speaking, okay, how are you thinking about putting your money to work in the markets based on all these various uh, demographic theses that you have and that you've expounded upon? So it's an interesting question. Generally speaking, I think the market over-extrapolates life stage differences into generational differences. And so a lot of categories that are dependent on the spending patterns of 35-year-olds to 45-year-olds uh, have had a rough go of it over the last cycle. And I think the market is over-extrapolating that into the next cycle. So I'll highlight single-family housing, especially entry-level single-family housing, as a category that will do much better than market consensus expects over the next five to 10 years. Um, demographics will go from being a pretty significant headwind to a very significant tailwind. Um, and I still think there's opportunity for consensus to come around to that understanding. Right, the sense being that you know, don't interpret what may be very well delayed spending decisions that we would have expected of people that are the age of millennials as some kind of choice that they've made to consciously avoid that choice altogether. It's not, like you said, something that is at the core of who they are as much as it may be coming later than the market uh, had reason to expect. I'd actually go go a step further and say, I don't think with the exception of um, with the exception of choosing when to have children, I don't think millennials are delaying home purchases and uh, and other patterns of consumption that much. I think there's much more ink spilled on the topic than is deserved. I think largely what you're seeing is you are 
looking back on an upcycle, and here I'm talking about kind of 2009 to the present, um, dominated by the spending habits of people in their 60s and people in their 20s. And uh, I think the market um, and participants in the market learn a lot of weird lessons about what um, consumption looks like when those are the two dominant groups. And we're going to move into a new decade where consumption is dominated by people in their 30s. Um, and I think uh, some categories, and again, I'll, I'll highlight single family housing here, um, some categories will, will look a lot more attractive when viewed in that light. Um, and I don't think it's so much an issue of delay, um, although there are there is definitely some delay in consumption among millennials. I, I think it's mostly just you haven't had a lot of 30-year-olds and you're about to have a lot of 30-year-olds. Something to look forward to, perhaps. Well, Nick, it's been, uh, it's been great to have you. Thanks so much for your insights uh, here on Double Take, and I'm sure we'll be catching up again some point down the road. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Mellon Investments Corporation is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Mellon, which are subject to change and which Mellon does not undertake to update. This podcast, or any portion thereof, may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This recording may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this recording is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable but the information has not been independently verified by Mellon. Mellon makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with Mellon, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Please see Mellon.com for important index licensing information. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst are registered trademarks owned by CFA Institute. For more market perspectives and insight from our teams, please visit www.mellon.com.